Right. Does anyone remember what the last thing that we learned is? About the eight tar. I believe the technical phrase I used was demonic hell spawn. Yep. And then that introduces three impurities into your soul and allows the gentle yin to heart to come out. Very good. Right? So. A Jew, right, so he's discussed this idea that there's something called the Yetzahara. The Yetzahara, if we think of our animal souls like a piece of clay, what would the Yetzahara be? If you think your animal soul is like a piece of clay. Well, how does a clay get its shape? Sculptor, right. right. So the sculptor, the potter, right, so the Yitzhar is the one shaping the animal soul into what kind of a form? It's kind of built into the name, right? Ra means? Bad form. Bad form, right? Okay, now. Because things which are not intrinsically prohibited, right, can ultimately be elevated, therefore the animal soul of a Jew is not naturally receptive to the form of the desiring things that are forbidden, right? So we said that the Yetzirah, the this negative demonic hell spawn, right, that is changing and shaping your animal soul into desiring things which are the three impure klipas, for a Jew, naturally only, or initially only, is susceptible to the influence of what's called the Jewish demonic forces, which is to desire things which are redeemable, therefore they're permitted, but to desire them for the sake of indulgence and lust rather than just for like health and certainly not for the service of Hashem. Okay. And we learned that what, what, what happens when one engage, indulges in something that um, does not actually need it, that that thing, even though it intrinsically is from Klippas Noga, it enters the realm of the three impure Klippas. And at that point, the Jew who does such a thing becomes infected be- with the influence of the non-Jewish Yetzirah develops desires for things which are truly forbidden. Okay. Now, why is this a, what is the optimistic point that comes out of this? Is it possible to free yourself of the desire to do things that are forbidden? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And then it's because that is something that is, that is being superimposed onto the Jew, it's possible also to eradicate that from the Jew, right? Now, is that easy? Yeah. On the other hand, the desire to do things that are technically permitted, but for purely indulgent reasons, um, that's something that, naturally speaking, a Jew is going to probably contend with the rest of their life. That's the last thing we did, yes? Okay. Now, the next part of chapter 8. Okay. The rest of chapter 8 basically deals with what is the effect of things, what is the long-term effect of klipa on a person. Okay. And again, here we're going to be contrasting the things which are klipa snoga versus the things which are the three impure klipas. Okay. Now, before we go into this discussion, um, I want to give some context. Why, is it, why would the altar ever want to tell us about the long-term detrimental effects of the klipa on a person? Um, so we don't do it. So we're do right? so trying to scare you into... No, but you're ruining your body and you're ruining your afterlife if you're doing it. Okay. Not to scare you, but you, you should know like, there are a few changes you cause and effect. Huh. Ah. Okay. So I think it's important here to draw a, a distinction between the idea of trying to coerce somebody versus empower somebody. In both cases, you're really trying to influence their behavior, right? But when you're coercing somebody, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bypass their ability to take responsibility for themselves, right? And use things that are emotionally powerful to get them to do what you consider to be, in the ideal, the right course of action, right? Um, 
empowering somebody, right, is the opposite, right? What you're doing is you're trying to give the person whatever they need to take responsibility, to take the right course of action under their own free will. Okay, now, which approach does Judaism favor of empowering people to make the right choices or kind of persuading, coercing people into making the right choices? Empowering. You sure? Both. Both. The answer is almost always both. Both. Judaism always has both. Depends which approach you focus on. Yeah, there's, there's, for instance, okay, there is an idea in Judaism that you should really flesh out how, how horrific the, the suffering that you will bring upon yourself and your loved ones and the whole world and the afterlife if you sin as a way of getting people not to sin. Now, if you really flesh out how horrible the consequences are, are you empowering the person or are you trying to coerce the person? Coerce the person. Now, so using the modern example, are you familiar with the um, labels they put on cigarettes that telling you that smoking is bad for you? No. Okay. So in some countries they put like graphic pictures of like destroyed lungs, destroyed lungs and things, right? Now why are they on doing the on the cigarette box? Yeah. On the package. On the package. Now why would they do that? To discourage you from doing it, right? Why don't they just tell you that like smoking? You know. People that make cigarettes don't want you to not smoke. Why would they do that? Because the government won't let them sell the cigarettes otherwise. Really? Really. Mm-hmm. But this is a business. The business that's yes, killing people. No, the business is business making money. Killing people is an unfortunate side effect. The cigarette companies don't want people to die. Dead people don't buy cigarettes. Everybody knows that. No, that's my point. Is you're not asking them not to buy cigarettes. No, I think those people only want to show that the sugar comes with We still buy all those packs. However many graphic pictures they put on a cigarette wait, 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 packet, somebody wait, wait, wait. who's addicted to tobacco is going to buy the cigarettes. They're okay. not worried about that business running out. Okay. Uh, the, I want to contrast the labels on those cigarettes with what it, they passed a law a few years ago in Israel where if something has high sugar or salt or fat content... I sometimes won't buy it because you see that. It has a little red no, circle. Every single thing. But imagine that someone having a heart attack. Horrible. Or something on it. So I don't it's different than a picture of a <laughs> Everything you buy has a stupid red circle on the Okay, now. In my house, we have three cereals regularly. One is Israeli cornflakes, which are disgusting. But I have Israeli children, so there you go. They seem to think they're amazing. Some of them. Then we have American cornflakes made in the UK, because you can't get American cornflakes that are made in America, but they taste the same. Um, and then we also have Cheerios, which is American, which is also American, but made in the UK. Okay. Oh, wait, where do you find them? Here? In the grocery store. You can get the non-Israeli whole grain ones, or so they have. So they have. So, so the Cheerios that the grocery store carries. They don't carry the normal. They carry two kinds of Cheerios from the actual Cheerios company. One kind of Cheerios are honey nut Cheerios, mm-hmm. with the hechsher. There's like I don't want to eat that hechsher because I'm like a religious zealot, okay. Um, and then the other one has a reasonable hechsher that I'll eat, and it's um, multi-grain Cheerios, which are like okay, and. Um, at some point, I stopped eating the multigrain Cheerios. Do you know why I stopped eating the multigrain Cheerios? Multigrain is like the regular Cheerios. No, no, the regular no, ones are just oats. Because they, all of a sudden, the Cheerio boxes had this big red, not big, this red circle on it, which says high sugar content. And in my mind, I just never thought of multigrain. Like it wasn't like it wasn't like frosted Cheerios, right? It, like they didn't. They, and the oh, box is still. Packaged as healthy, it's like they speak about how many multigrains you have, and and all the vitamins and all the they minerals. Presented it's presented very healthy, and it's like I mean I know what sugar cereals look like, and this isn't presented itself is. It's not even called honey nuts. Like that, I know it's got the red thing. I was like, oh okay, so right. And then you know they have like these these like um, in the pharmacy, they have these health bars. You know, they also have the red thing on it. They have, hi, yeah, they have the red it. thing on. They have the red thing for high sugar and the red thing for high fat. And I'm like, so ah, so like it's true. It's like you know all natural and it's like twenty thousand different things pressed together, not really baked, and it's supposed to. But it's apparently like yeah. So, but the difference between these symbols and the things that are on the um, 
on the cigarettes is that these symbols are not trying to persuade you of anything. Right. Just you know. This is like, like, let us assume for the moment that people actually do care about minimizing, your, and there are some people that actually do, right? Minimizing the intake of things that are really unhealthy. And many products, it's obvious. We all know that if you drink Coca-Cola, it has a lot of sugar on it, right? We all know that. But there's a lot of drinks that I just, you know, you just don't think to change. It doesn't click on your mind. The drink is built as, he- built as healthy. It's like flavored water. And then it's like high sugar content. You look like, oh my gosh, there's so much sugar in this. Um, now, a person could say, you know what, I don't care, forget it, I'm just going like, to ignore it, right? But what it does is empowers you that if you want to take that information seriously, it makes it quite feasible because you, can, you don't have to start calculating anything. It's just like, it's very clear. It's right there, it's a little red circle. Ironically, Coca-Cola is the same shade of red, so you can't see the little red circle. Coca-Cola, regular Coca-Cola, is red, it's red and white label with the same shade of red, same shade of white, so it blends right in. You don't notice it. But no, it's like it's very it's a it's a very helpful thing. It doesn't it doesn't make you eat healthy, it doesn't persuade you, it doesn't encourage you, but it makes shopping and deciding what things you're going to actually so if I'm gonna sit down with a bowl of cereal now, it's just like the Cheerios are like not part of the thing because I don't want to eat like, the cigarettes are course. But the cigarettes, right, are really saying we don't really trust people to make informed decisions. Now, that's for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of addiction, I don't care, right? And therefore, what we're going to try and do is we're going to use something else to, that as an emotional push or pull on the person to get them to change their behavior, right? Um, you see the difference? Yeah. Okay, now, there are books in Judaism that will describe what happens to you if you sin or if you encounter the klipa in great detail. And what, the, what is the purpose of this description? Is to scare you into doing things. No. Yes. Yeah. To scare you. Oh yes, to scare you. Of course. Quite, quite to scare you. Why not? The point is to scare you. For sure. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a book um, of Kabbalah, and it has a section called Shara Gehenim, the Gate of Hell, which describes all the different types of torments in great detail that occur to a soul to be cleansed of each particular kind of sin. With the, with, with, in very vivid detail, which I'm not going to in any way describe. I mean, it's all metaphoric, right? We understand there's no physical bodies. Um, but you know, like all that stuff where, oh, Jews, we don't believe in hell and demons and like, oh, yeah, it's not true. We do. It's all there. We just don't focus on we, it. Yeah, we just don't talk about it so much. But there are books like that. And there was actually a whole genre. I mean, it still exists to this day, but the, there's a whole genre of, um, of, of sermons that used to happen where you would have the, the, the maggot, the preacher would come to town and would describe in great detail all the torments that people would face for, for their sinful behavior in order to get people to change their ways. Okay. Um, it's funny now, because, you know, but it's, it's not actually so funny when, like, you know, women would faint in the thought of what was happening, and then men would wail, and, like, you know, it was, like, it was a thing. And then, of course, they would pay the preacher because he had done a good job of bringing people back to the service of the one true God. Now, this is not the approach of Hasidus. So if I ask the question in Hasidus, Hasidus doesn't take this approach. But, but in Judaism, there is this idea. Okay? So since the Altar doesn't take this approach, why is Altar going to tell us specifically what happens to, the, to us because of the klipa? He's trying to inform us. Okay? But then that raises a question, then isn't it enough just to say like what the klipa is? right? Why do I need the specific details? Because we're going to get into specific details. They're not, he's not going to really flesh it out with all the gory details, but we're going to get into specifics. And like, who cares about the specifics, right? The idea is that Klippa is bad for you. Now that you know, right? Just put the little sign that says, like, you know, contains Klippa. Especially since he kind of already did that in chapter 7. So the reason for this is if a person understands the effect of something. They have a better understanding of what it actually is, assuming that the effect is a direct consequence of the thing. For instance, um, if I were to explain to you the effects of sleep deprivation, would that make it a little bit clearer why it's important for you to get a good night's sleep? Now, at the end of the day, I can do that in a way where I'm just being informative, right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like, 
being, being emotionally manipulative or anything, but I'm just laying it out. Like, you should really be aware. Like, these are the consequences. Like, I don't suffice with it's generally unhealthy, right? I really get it, like, why it's important. Like, what are the effects of being sleep deprived? Right? That makes it much easier for a person if they decide that that's important for them to do it because we connect to things when we, have some un- when we actually have some understanding. Whereas if you just generally say it's healthy to get eight hours of sleep, it's, it's hard for a person, even of their own choice, to decide that they want to actually take that seriously. Right? I mean, um, so there's this idea that you're not just labeling it as healthy or unhealthy, good or bad. You're explaining what's bad about it. And one of the ways of explaining what's bad about it is if the consequences are a natural outcome of it, rather than just like an imposed punishment from above. Okay, so if, right, so if um, someone explains, someone tells you like how different crimes are going to get different jail terms, that's really just trying to fear, make a person afraid because there's no real connection between the crime and the jail time, right? No, it's based on like whatever governments. Side. For instance, how much jail time do you get for murder on average in the United States? Ten years. I think it's less. I believe it's around seven Are you years. Serious? I believe so. What, if yes. I kill someone, I go to jail for seven years? Oh, you won't go to jail for seven years. You'll either get off or you'll go to jail for life. So who gets to go to jail for seven years? People are voting this. I mean, it has a lot to do with you know the kind of person you are. You know. Oh, I will get for Probably, life. Probably, statistically. Well, you're saying that. Why? Um, because you're upper middle class, single female Caucasian, so either the jury, you know, will either they're gonna like really throw the book at you because they're gonna portray you as an absolute villain, or that you're gonna cut off as completely, you know, not guilty. There's probably not much middle ground for that kind you're of. Saying thing. there's no like blanket rules. It's- it's whatever the judge feels in the moment. There's a lot of things, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, you know, how much of prosecutors, yeah, it's like, it's crazy. Like, there's people, crazy. it's really crazy, yeah. And you can't even, like, do it that a computer, because, like, to train the computers to do it, you have to use previous decisions, and the previous decisions are so biased, yeah. there's no way to create a fair justice in that. But even if it was, quote, fair, you're still, people are making judgment calls of what's the appropriate punishment for the crime. It's not an actual consequence of the crime, right? What if I kill now, now I an actual consequence of the crime is like the guy is like the guy who who was on trial for murdering his parents and asked for mercy because he was an orphan. Because it's an orphan, that's a natural consequence of killing your parents. Like that's a consequence, right? Um, no, but, like, I actually think it's smart that they base each. I mean, if they're doing it smartly, but that they take each case individually. You can't have to, but there has to be a. You can't have like just like. Like if you say someone murdered someone, it's always whatever fifteen years. What if someone murdered someone while saving his child? Well, then it's not murder. It's murder. Right, it's a murder. Yeah, that's a different pet crime. You're con- you're conflating between which crime the person committed and what sentence they should get I can't for the crime. Tell someone I have to go to jail for life. Probably. Probably. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't probably kill somebody. I'm just like, all things being equal, that's probably not what you want to be I doing with you your life. Go to jail. I know, but somebody yeah, else exactly. for seven years and I go for life? Or not at all. More likely not at all. And there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground for your, for your particular subcategory. It's only person. one way to find out. What do you mean, what's like, I don't get it. What do you mean, not at all? What does that mean? You get that off the hook. You, you probably. Yeah. Yeah. You go to court, yeah. you figure it out, whatever, and they're like, have a good defense attorney, you. they get you off. Oh, so then either I could do nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but I don't believe that. Okay. Anyway, American law. But it's true in yeah. many countries. Sure. The, 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 yeah. the, okay, the point is that there are things that are yeah, natural consequences. Like yes. Some are worse. America's really on the far end of the extreme, but yeah, most of the countries like that. Uh, no, but then you have consequences that are quite natural. Like, for instance, if you don't sleep regularly, right? That's going to have certain consequences. Those are not imposed because the government decided what to impose, right? Those are just the consequences of what's going on, right? Okay. So if we understand that the consequences that we're going to read of the klipa are, di- are direct natural consequences of the klipa, they're not God imposing some sort of punishment because he has some sort of judicial system going on, then it actually informs us as to really the nature of the klipa. Okay. In other words, from its effect, we know what's really going on, and that makes us more informed about it, which empowers us to really take it more seriously. Okay? So that's, the goal is not to scare us, the goal is to empower us through informing us. Ready? Okay. We are 
at the, we are on the left-hand column. The sentence starts, nevertheless. It is after footnote three. But if we were just told what like, God would do to us, that would be... That would be much more scary. Yeah, like, and then God will smite thee. Like, okay, I don't want to be smited. I better listen to God. What? I know, but it's almost the same. Nevertheless, so this is talking about things that are klipas noga, which can be redeemed when the person does mitzvahs or tshuva, if they've indulged in these things, right? Before it has reverted to holiness, it is sitrachar and klipa. Okay, we knew that already, right? And even afterward, a trace of it remains attached to the body. So, if a person... This is talking specifically about foods, by the way, right now. If a person eats food, before it becomes holy, it's sitracha, right? We're not talking about forbidden food, right? And even after it's elevated and transformed to holiness, a trace of it remains in the body. A trace of what? Of the klipa. Okay? Um, do you know what heavy metal poisoning is? Yeah. Right, mercury is in heavy metal. There's things called heavy metals. Mercury is one of them. They're really bad for you. And they exist in a lot of stuff. Like fish has heavy metals in them. Right? Um, now, also, like if you live in certain neighborhoods in the United States, there's heavy metal poisoning just in the soil. Um, you ever seen that thing on the gas station that says unleaded gas? You know why it's unleaded? Because they used to put lead in the gas. And then when the fumes would go out in the air, and then everyone would breathe the air. And so you're breathing in the lead. Have it in the pipes. Right, it's in the pipes. You get unleaded pipes. Right. Well, I mean... Unleaded? No, now, now, now every country does unleaded. But there are things, they have these heavy metals, lead, mercury, things like that. And what ends up happening is that these things are really bad for your health, especially your mental health. Really? Really, yes. How? Well, so here's the thing. Um, lead... One of the effects of the lead is that it makes, it may, one of the effects that lead has on you is that it, um, inhibits your, it, it inhibits your cognitive functioning. So if you have lead poisoning, you have less self-control, you have less ability to plan for the future, you're less able to deal with abstract complex problems. Okay? Um, if you have enough of it, like you become dysfunctional. Okay. Mercury also has similar types of things. Right now, here's the thing. Um, who currently in this room is suffering from heavy metal poisoning? All of us. We don't know. The entire school turned out All of us are suffering from heavy metal poisoning. Any number of things, like you eat fish. Heavy metal poisoning? Yeah. Do you eat, do you eat fish ever? Ah, oh, so here's the thing. The amounts are ten. So the so the so the thing is like this. The amounts that most of us have are very very minor, and so the negative effect is also very minor. And everyone else is suffering from the same negative effects. We don't seem to think of anything wrong with it, right? Yeah. It has it, you know it has a small decrease in one's cognitive abilities. In other words, if you would we all we would be free of all the heavy metals in our bodies, we would our cognitive function would go up, our self control would go up, our ability to plan would go up, probably marginally, very That's small. A lot. No, it's true. Should I not be a fish? No, because. But people tell you to like stop doing other things like. Like people say, like marijuana makes you like lose like cognitive function and stuff like that. So like, why is that worse than eating fish? Uh, I, you want the actual numbers? Um, obviously, I know what it is. But like, oh, I mean, marijuana. If I, if I remember the the science, which I not my field of expertise, but marijuana up till around tw mid twenties has a very has a very strong negative influence on cognitive functioning that might be permanent. And after twenty. After the 20s, apparently, yeah. The brain is still developing then. It's not so clear that it has permanent effects after 20. Like, while you're on high, it has so an effect. Some people say 20%. Yeah, I'm not sure 100% of the science. But anyway, the, the reason I'm using this example is because it's pervasive. Okay? Is because it's pervasive. Okay? Um, and yes, and it, and it has an effect, right? Now, obviously, if the accumulation gets to be too high, right, people, the, the, it, it, people start to notice it. But also, How if you... Fish have heavy metal There's a lot to do with industrial policy and where industrial waste goes and stuff like that. I think there's a way to get rid of it. 
people start changing in their houses all the pipes and non. No, 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 no. It has to do with the fish. The fish gets it from. Only the fish. Yeah, the fish is a major source of it. Really? Yeah, I know. Yeah, also, there's issues. Are, fish, there's issues also. People don't eat fish because of it. There are people doing fish. fish. There, are also, there are people doing fish because of that. Yeah. What? What? Anyway. Uh, the reason why. We, we changed our pipes in my house to non lead pipes. I remember when we did that. So, I mean, there are certain, certain neighborhoods in the United States where there's just a lot of lead in the ground from other stuff, and it's still there. So, kids play in the playground, they get it. So, the thing is. You, the thing is, it's not necessarily you notice it, but like if you compare like a group of people that, like if you compare groups of people and you say, oh, there, here there's a lot of lead and mercury in the food and the water, and here there's less, you also notice that this, the group that has less probably have higher, higher IQs, tend to have higher functioning, um, you know, they're able to, they tend to be, do better on delayed gratification tests and things like that. Okay. Are all our issues are from? No, so our issues are no, from. No, I'm just saying. Okay, and the point is it has it has an effect. Okay, but the effect and it's and, and it's and 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 it, and, it, and it accumulates in the body. Okay, so in a similar way, even though we said that in general, when you do something which is klipas noga and ultimately gets transformed into holiness, you do you ultimately do mitzvahs or you do tshuva and do mitzvahs indulgent. That klipas noga in the body, it, it, it there's some. There's some trace that's left over, kind of like those trace heavy metals in the food and the water and things, and it accumulates and it builds up over time. And that buildup has an effect. Okay? Um, and that stays until when? This is why the body must undergo the purgatory of the grave in order to cleanse it and purify it of its uncleanliness which had received from the enjoyment of the mundane things and pleasures which are derived from the uncleanliness of Klippus Noga and of the Jew- Jewish demons. How do you get rid of this buildup of Klippa? No, not by dying. <laughs> by undergoing the purgatory of the grave, which in Hebrew is called Chibut HaKever. So, what is this process and why does it cleanse? Okay. So, the, the, this klipa, it stays part of a person because it actually, as soon as you, as soon as you eat something, and this is again we're talking specifically about food, okay? The Altarba said immediately this forms the flesh and blood of the person, right? Means attached body, since each item are immediately formed flesh and blood of the, of the person. Now, is that true? Like, then as soon as you eat something, it becomes your flesh and blood? Yeah? The moment that you eat it, it becomes flesh and blood? Yeah. No? So the Altarba didn't, the Altarba was saying something false? I don't know, what did he say? Does it take time to yeah. digest? Yeah. He, he says, since from each item of food and drink are immediately formed blood and flesh of his flesh. But, I mean, seemingly it takes time for things to digest, right? What? Okay. So, in the middle of the paragraph. I read back and then read, I read forward and then read back of it. When a person eats something, okay, it has an immediate effect on their body before they digest it. Okay. Um, to illustrate this, okay, anyone here drink coffee in the morning? Okay. Does coffee wake you up? Yeah. Okay. How long does it take for the coffee to wake you up? Like twenty minutes. Like after I drink it. Like, th- which one? Like you drink the coffee and do you, uh, you feel more awake right after you drink the coffee? Ten minutes after you drink the coffee? It's like twenty. Gradual. It's gradual. But when does it start? That's what I'm interested. in. When you drink it, right? Now, when you drink it, no caffeine has been metabolized yet. Caffeine starts, starts actually having an effect around twenty minutes, depending on you know, around twenty minutes. But most people report that drinking coffee makes them feel more awake. 
as or right after they drink it. In fact, most people, most people report that even if the, caf- the coffee is decaffeinated. <laughs> yes? So it's a hot drink and it's in the morning and you're drinking it. It's a hot drink. Hot, it's the, in other words, there is the experience of consuming food has an effect. It wakes the person's body up. It affects the person. Okay? And this idea is that what Chassidus would call the enjoyment, the hana, the pleasure you get out of consuming food, already has an immediate impact on a person's body, even before we get into the issue of digestion. In a clipos night, in a gimel clipos night, way. Before we get before we get to that, okay. So the idea here is that even if you don't actually digest the food, your body has actually um, been influenced and developed and has um, been you know, changed in some way by the actual experience of eating the food. And so the way it is understood is that spiritually what's happening, even though it takes time for your body to digest the food physically, the spiritual component of the food is absorbed into the soul right away. It's absorbed into, via the experience of the soul into the body, and it, and it fortifies the body, which is, um, which is why we have this idea like a person can feel like very out of it, and they drink some water, right, or they drink, yeah, and, and it, it refreshes them. So there's this notion that you're actually being invigorated by the food, by the mere experience of eating it. Okay? Now, that means that part of your body has been built up by you enjoying klipa. That's basically what that means. Your, the process by which you have built up your body is a process of enjoying klipa. So that means that even once you've elevated, once you've changed, there's something that remains very fundamentally wrapped up in the body. Now, how would you possibly get rid of that aspect? So I'm going to use a, 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 an analogy which is a little more psychological, but I think it'll illustrate. Okay. Um, have you ever um, made fun of somebody? Yeah. And thought it was funny? Yeah. yeah. You have that experience? Shame on you. Thanks. Pathetic excuse for a human being. No. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, if you think back on it, is it still funny? No. No. Not Why not? What? It's not because you, you're such a great person now, you don't think it's funny at all? No, it's just not funny anymore. Why not? It's not nice. What? I don't know. It depends. It depends. Sometimes, Sometimes it's still funny. It's funny. Sometimes it's still funny. Okay. It's not nice. I have a lot about it, but it's almost funny. Okay. Funny. What? Sometimes it's still funny. <laughs> All that's right. mean people. Yes. It can be very funny. It can be funny. Right? That's fine. Maybe your comments aren't that funny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that could be the case. Um, no, they're hysterical. Well, if they're hysterical and you think back on them, it doesn't bring a smile to your face. I'm sorry. I was Think of a specific example. It works better that way. Okay. Then you're being, then then there's more like then there's more honesty. I'll give you a specific example. Okay. Um, one time I made a very very nasty comment to a student in my note women's program, which I thought was very very funny. You um, made a comment to a woman's program. Yeah. Very, 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 very. I, 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 predict, I, I happen to think that the comment is still very funny, although over the years of reflection, it was probably inappropriate and out of place. I will, just so you understand why I still think it's funny. <laughs> um, I was describing something, whatever it was the class was about. And this, I feel so bad for her already. <laughs> and, she says, and she says, well, we can't, un- she says, we can't understand that. And I said, why not? And she says, well, because we've never seen it. And so I said, do you live in a zoo? And she says, what? I said, a zoo. Do you live in a zoo? So what was that? Well, I mean, you know, there are creatures which are not capable of fathoming things they don't have direct experience of, and those are called animals. And then there's these other side of creatures that have a capacity to conceptualize things they have no direct experience of, and those are called people. And like, I don't know, your argument seems to imply that you think you belong in a zoo, and I just want to know if that's really what you're saying. And I still say think it's a very clever retort, but it's really mean, and I shouldn't have said it. But you can see, like, I still think it's funny. So, it's a problem, right? I still even say it again, right? What? I probably still even say it again. No. 
I, I, I would like to tell you no, but um, <laughs> this is a problem, right? How do you know that she was attentive? Let me put it to you this way. Never As a, 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 one second. Yes. Okay. Um, one of the things that I have learned teaching is that um, while it is not a problem to offend students, it is a problem to offend students if you're not doing it out of consideration for their education. In other words, if I say something offensive because I genuinely believe that's the most effective way of educating the person, I might be wrong, but I don't think that is illegitimate. Like, I'm not saying, oh, it's, it's inherently problematic to say something that someone finds offensive. Right. That being said, looking back on it, I definitely know that for myself, I was more impressed with the wittiness of the comments rather than thinking, is this the best way of conveying the idea to her? Right. Um, and therefore, whether she was offended or not is almost beside the point. It was out of place. Okay, I found the example. Okay, and I can tell from your smile that you still probably think it's kind of funny, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about it. Okay. <laughs> now, so I, what I want to do is like, like, do I recognize that what I did was wrong? And I can't even change my behavior, right? But there's some element in which the sense of being invigorated by the wittiness of it hasn't gone away, right? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this is the same thing. I was saying when you eat food, that food, the fact that you enjoy it means the klipa is invigorating you. And that didn't really change. You did all the, like, the fact that klipa is some invigorating force in your life and that has, has a cumulative effect on, on the makeup of, of your body doesn't change because you did Torah mitzvahs. Like, you still have that same thing. I mean, you, you, the, 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 the sense of, of food, um, not being a godly thing, but just being klipa, as being something that you find um, rejuvenating, invigorating, doesn't, hasn't changed because you've done a lot of Torah mitzvahs. Does Chibut HaKever take that away? Ah, and takes that away. Because what is Chibut HaKever? Anyone know what Chibut HaKever is? The, the, the purgatory rolling, of the grave? Something rolling underground? Yeah, it's uh, basically like this. Basically like this. Um, our body's disgusting. No. No? No. I want you to think about that no, wait, for a second. Yeah. Well, have you ever seen a body? Yeah. Just a body. A dead body? Well, it's a body, right? I've seen a body. And? Well, like, stunning, but like, disgusting. Well, some people think it's you, funny. You stand there watching it for a while? Uh, okay, no, I've never, I've never seen a dead body. It's a little uncomfortable, right? And what happens if it, you leave it there for a while? Uh, uh, or, or how about this? How about even bodies that are alive, but like, Let's just take off that first surface layer. Yeah, or I'll just watch it from the inside. Have you ever watched someone else chew? It's amazing how when you're chewing, it's the most fabulous experience imaginable, but someone else's chewing is absolutely disgusting. And that's because, and that's because, because you see it as opposed to experiencing the pleasure of the klipa. Ew. Ew, right. So what happens when the person is in the grave is you get to see the body for what the body is. actually is. And, and, and what does that do to all of the enjoyment of the... Um... Disgusting. That's right. And what does that do? That's how you get rid of it. Yeah. Imagine that the person dies. Right? By the way, when you die, you don't leave your body right away. That's a myth. It takes time to leave your body. And the first thing that happens when you die... Wait, how long it takes to leave your body? Hopefully. Uh, you know, basically happens when the body decomposes. So, a few months. Yeah. So it what comes in stages. What? Well, one of the things you're doing is you're finally seeing the body for what it really is. Wait, your neshama doesn't go up? You, see your, you look at a dead body? No. Looking is such a passive thing. Understand. You, it's more like experiencing. No, 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 no. Death is not peaceful. No, no. Death is not No, no, no. Not for anyone. Not we're gonna get. We're gonna get to uh, who that may, may be. No. So basically, no. You get to. You get to experience. Um, the, the way the Talmud puts it is that the maggots going through the body are as painful to the dead person as needles are to the live person. You get to actually experience. Well, what does it mean that you're made of flesh and blood, and that you experience? You like, took plants and animals and put them in your body and felt like 
vivified and nourished and sustained by like you, like if, if you take out the way we got caught up in the pleasure of that who says anything about fault? Who says anything about fault? Right? But if you actually experience it for what it really is, rather than getting sucked into the the, the, the pleasurable experience of it. But that is what it really is. It's replenishing like your blood and making you feel like no. healthier. No. No. So because okay. what? Fine. Because this is this is this is a this is a um this is a this is a common thing. Is that we conflate between the fact that something is beneficial or even necessary to versus the experience of it. The Alter Rebbe is not talking about well, Right, but if you, do, if, if, but but the thing is, if you if you, anyone ever ever anyone here own a car? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Um, what are some of the great perks of owning a car? Changing the oil, right? Taking it to get you know tune up, right? These are some of the great perks of owning a car. You look forward to these activities, right? Right? Changing tires. Right, renewing your insurance, right? Yeah. Now, so you're just not going to do those things? Of course you're going to do those things. Why? Right. But now, it's like one of these things. You have this. You have this. You have this. Your soul has this car. It's made up of a liver and a spleen and lungs and brains, and it needs. You know, it needs. It needs to. You need to stop at the gas station periodically and fill it up with gas. And you got to. You know, sometimes take it to the tune-up, and you got to do all, right, all these different things, right? And it's a drag, but like, what are you supposed to do, right? Is that how we experience eating and drinking and taking care of our body? No, we experience it as like, it's the tide of our life. It's rejuvenating, it's, it's refreshing. So the, the issue here is, the, the issue here is not the necessity about the act per se and what it, the role is. It's the fact that there's something, the, 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 the fact that there's the, the person has this enjoyment and therefore this attachment to it means that they're holding on to the klipa. They're not just using it and moving, moving past it. Going back to um, my, my uh, thing about finding it funny when you, make, when you say something mean to somebody, right? The problem is as much as I recognize that I shouldn't have done that and I moved on and I've learned and I've grown, blah, 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 on some level I'm still holding on to it. How do you know I'm still holding on to it? Because I, I still find it funny. I still enjoy it. Right? And so here's the issue, is that if, if, a, person, if a person is, 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 is doing things which, again, are permitted, right? and they're doing them, and they ultimately become transformed into holiness, but they're doing them in such a way that they, 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 are, they get caught up in the enjoyment of it, even if it's not for the purpose of indulgence, all the more so if it is for the purpose of indulgence, then they're emotionally binding themselves to that klipa. And then it kind of accumulates in them like a toxin. And the only way to get it out is to purge that. And that purging attachment, ultimately, it happens when the person dies. And then the soul gets to experience what it really is to have a body. And what a body really is, which is, an org- which is like a piece of organic flesh that decomposes, that was you know, being held together because you kept putting in other p- pieces of other organisms inside. And it's kind of gross when you think about it. It's useful, but gross. And a toilet is also useful, right? But it's gross. So everyone goes to hell. This is not hell. We're not to hell yet. We're gonna get to hell later. This is before hell. This is called purgatory of the grave in English, or if you would like. Um, Isn't hell purgatory? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it depends what you mean by hell. If you mean hell like a place of like burning fires, you mean like that? Yeah. No, that's that that's Gehenna. If you mean hell like eternal damnation, then we don't have that particular thing in Judaism. But, yeah, no eternal damnation, just very, very long damnation. Yeah. Um, so if the body, if the soul leaves the body when it, when the body decomposes, what if you like get, you know how like some religions or whatever, some people who aren't religious Jews get like involved? <laughs> like, That's one of the reasons why you really shouldn't do that. Yeah. That's really bad for the pers- deceased person to get involved. So you only, because they don't get, your, your soul only leaves your body once you're decomposed. Yeah, well, the soul has different aspects of it, so some leave right away. But yes, some parts are held into the body. What about like people who are like, is it like from the Holocaust? And like, I know there's a whole different thing, because 
they didn't choose to be cremated in it. But like, what about things like that? Well, I mean, there's a different thing. Cremation, cre- cremation. there's a sanctity to the body that's being dishonored by cremation. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily have that. It's not the same thing as embalming, where embalming binds the soul because it destroys yeah, the Yeah, like what if you're, like, burned to death constantly? Like, I mean, that'd be sad. Don't, don't do yeah, that. Yeah, but like, when, when does, it, like, does the soul leave the body whenever the body's just gone? There's aspects of the soul that leave, yeah, that correlates... By the way, this also explains why certain Siddiquim, their souls never decompose. They said their bodies never decompose because certain Siddiquim, their souls never leave their bodies. Not because they're, um, not because they're, what do you call it, um, being embalmed, but because the soul still wants to retain a connection with this world. And so it stays in the body and therefore the body doesn't decompose. Yeah. Is that like stories? So then why can't we find like, why can't we like search, actually search? Like you know how there's like debate about where King David's buried. Like why can't we actually go search and find his body if he was in could. I mean, is he considered a zombie? Yeah. Um, so like, why haven't historians done that? Because it's just about like keeping your body holy, like we should. I mean, first off, I mean, you are, there's practical considerations, which is that. You know, digging any archaeological things in, in the old city is like politically fraught. Yeah, sure. That's number one. Um, number two, um, digging up under grave sites is religiously fraught. I mean, there's a lot of protests that happen anytime that any sort of digging involves graves in Israel. Yeah. Um, so but even like, like, Rachel, like, there's like debate that she's where she is. Yeah, I mean, why can't we just like go for I, I, physically you could, but if you, but you're not gonna get very far because people have all sorts of reasons not to. But like, I mean, you could. Yeah. I mean, it's happened. I can tell you a few stories. The Rebbe Rashab was buried in Rostov, in mm. Russia, and um, the communists decided they were going to put a, I believe, a railroad tracks, or I believe it was railroads, but I'm not sure, over the Jewish cemetery in Rostov. And yeah. so the Chassidim in the middle of the night. Dug up the Rebbe Rashab and moved him, so he wouldn't be plowed over. They opened up the coffin. How do that? Because Jews bury in wooden coffins, and wooden coffins decompose, so they don't really last. How long after was yeah, that? Yeah, Jews aren't really supposed to use coffins. We we bury in the ground. In Israel, they don't use coffins at all. Outside of Israel, they use plain wooden coffins that decompose, and they slip the bottom out. The bottoms all have false bottoms. Was it from when he died from the... Uh, I don't know, a few years. Oh, it wasn't like on a few years. You know how fast bodies decompose in the ground? <laughs> it was only a few months, that's what I'm saying. Right, so it was a few years, and he was like... Yeah. But what was really weird is that there was another chassid buried next to him. And his body And um, he, they, they dug him out also. All there was, and he was buried, the Rebbe Shad had given him a special handkerchief that he used. Yeah. Um, when he was said, my mom said discourses. And when this chassid died, he has to be buried with the handkerchief, and it was wrapped around his hand. And he's still there. So the handkerchief and the hand were still there, but the rest of his body was bones. That's nuts. That's nuts. What? Yeah. Because it was Rebbe's? Wow. Uh, but this is not unique to Rebbe's. I, I know, I heard, when I was in Kuala, I heard from my Rosh Kuala, Rebbe Deitch, that he heard from the person who saw this, that there was a... Um, it's a weird story. But in the 80s, a lot of Jews came out of Russia to Israel. Mm-hmm. And so a guy who works in, I think it was worked in Zaka. I don't, one of these, uh, one of these like, organizations, one of these like, organizations that deals with dead bodies and stuff, got a call to come to the airport. Um, because one of the Russian immigrants had apparently brought his father's remains in a suitcase. And um, his father was several years dead, but the body was fresh. Why? So the, the so like some so so the the the, the guy who works in the Chaver Kedisha asked the son, and it was a whole issue because he didn't. It was a whole because you're not really supposed to bring bodies in in a suitcase, right? That's not exactly how you transfer bodies. But he was leaving communist Russia. He, like, he wasn't used to working with the authorities, you understand? Um, so, the, so the guy from the Chavar Kedisha asked him, like, 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 how could, if your father's been dead for like you know, 10 years, whatever it is, like, and you dug him up the ground, how is the body still like, fresh? Doesn't make any sense. 
So was he a big tzaddik? I don't know. Completely, like, you know, grew up in Russia, doesn't know, didn't think. I don't know, my father, he said, my father was religious. Anything special? He says, I don't know. One time I was watching television with my friends on Shabbos, and he told us to, 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 to stop the television. It was disturbing the Shabbos. And um, so I didn't listen to him. And he, he got upset, and he said, you, you should stop watching the television, or we're not going to be able to watch it anymore. And uh, we ignored him. And then he looked at the television, and the, 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 the old television with the tubes, and then the tube just exploded. So was, I don't know. My father, I think, was a, I think it was a holy guy. <laughs> like it's a, I don't know, I no idea who this guy was, but I, he didn't think it was crazy. Because like, he didn't. He, whoever his father, like he wasn't. He, there was no Jewish school. He went to communist school, and he like didn't wasn't interested in Torah. But his father was apparently like some kind of hidden tzaddik or something. I don't know. The holy Rujan the Rebbe was once asked by his Hasidim, who are the 36 hidden Siddiquim? And so the holy Rujan the Rebbe said, I'm one of the 36 hidden Siddiquim. And they said, Rebbe, we all know you're a tzaddik. And he said, Oy vey, if the tzaddik that you think I am is the tzaddik I actually am. I mean, being a hidden tzaddik doesn't... Yeah. You could you, everyone know you're a tzaddik, you still be considered a hidden tzaddik. Yeah. Because there's levels and levels of what it means to be righteous. Yeah. Anyway, so well, at, at, at the end of a person's life, right, the soul finally confronts what it really means that you have this that you have this enjoyment from sustaining a body. And that's kind of disturbing, and that breaks, right? It's if you go back to my analogy, right? like once you, if, if once you really appreciate like how much you could hurt somebody by making a funny comment, a mean comment towards them, it stops being funny. Right? You could get to a point where it's really not funny, but you have to see it for what it really is. Right? And then that emotional element, that pleasurable element, disappears. But I understand why the souls of Saudis want to stay in the world and have that into their oh, why? Oh, why they want to stay? Yeah, like why that would make their bodies. Well, there's a few different explanations. The general explanation is that the that all souls want to stay. It's just the body gets to a point where it's just too much accumulated, too much klipa, and it can't. And so the, the 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 body kind of self-destructs, and the soul leaves. Has to has to leave. Whereas with certain sadiqim, the the there's not an accumulation of klipa. It's just that their time to act in the world has ended. But the soul doesn't ever really want to leave the world because the world is a place of doing to our mitzvahs. And the body doesn't have an accumulation of clean, but the soul can stay there. And therefore, such souls become conduits between heaven and earth, which is why the Zohar speaks about the importance of praying at the gravesite of a tzaddik. Yeah, you can also go to, like, to, like, the cave of, like, a regular person, and you can still, like, tell someone or whatever, like... Yeah, but that's for a different reason. But, like, if there's nothing there... No, there's several reasons to daven at grave sites. One of the reasons to daven at grave sites is that when you're daven at a grave site, you're humble because you're, like, you're mortal, and you can... You know, that's one very basic reason. For that, you could go to a non-Jewish cemetery, it says Malach. Like, there's a point of going to a non-Jewish cemetery, barring the issue of like there being Christian symbols there. But like, if people, if you go to a place where people have died or people are buried, it like humbles you. There's another thing about going to like the grave site of your ancestors or something. It also has a certain effect. No. Um, there's an there is an element of the stole which always stays, a very superficial element, and that's. That's why we make we make kind of um, some marker of the gravesite. That marker is like kind of the the link between the soul and the world, but it doesn't have that full force. The Zohar speaks about how there's tzaddikim that their souls really part of the soul always stays enmeshed in the physical world through the body, and the body doesn't decompose, and therefore they're like pipelines to heaven. And all of our prayers go up through those souls, and all of the, God's blessings come down through those souls. And, Pretty, no, pretty clear. What's the soul doing by being with the body? She can't do anything anyway. She just sits there. Facilitates and connects to our service. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but that's if that's if the soul is, is if the if the body is is kind of body that should be housing the soul. If it's embalmed, then it's just torture for the soul because it's like being trapped in a box that's all dirty. You don't want to be there. Okay, now. Um, 
Skip down to the end of the paragraph. Only one who had derived no enjoyment from this world all his life, as in the case of our saintly master, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, is spared this. What if you never enjoyed Klippa? What if really when you like ate and drank, it really was like getting your car, filling it up with gas, tuning it up? Then, well, you would be, you'd be a very righteous sadik, but you know what else would happen? You, would you have any need to, what would it be like for the soul when the body dies? It wouldn't be a big deal because you wouldn't be attached to the body. In other words, if I'm, give me an example, if I'm using this marker, right? And I'm done using this marker and I put it down, is that like a big deal emotionally? No, right? If you're just using your body to serve Hashem and then that's it, like there's no, like that's, that's all there's, right? And then the body decomposes, so it's not a big deal for the soul. The reason why it's a big deal to experience this purgatory of the grave is because the person was very enmeshed in the central experience of maintaining their body. So to make this equation very simple, the more you enjoy your physical existence, mainly through eating and drinking, the more painful the body um, decomposing in the ground is going to be for you. And if you don't really emotionally identify at all with the experience of being a physical being, you just use your physical existence, then what happens? Then, then when the body goes in the ground and decomposes, it's not a big deal at all. Okay. Now, why is Alpha telling us this? Can we be like Rabbi Huda Hanasi, Rabbi Huda the, the prince? No. Sure we can. Yes. Because is the element here that you're so holy that you derive no pleasure from the world? Or the issue is just the deriving the pleasure? Okay, so here's an interesting thing. Have you, any of you worked on an essay that was due tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. Did you stay up all night doing that? Yeah. Okay, right, that's a, like a rite of passage that one has to go through. Um, did you eat and drink during that? Yeah, no. Uh, what? No? Okay. Probably? Yeah, take a break. Anyone actually eat or drink while doing it? Like you have like coffee or soda or something to snack while doing it? Sometimes I have sometimes I have. Sometimes you have something to Now, if you're really working and you happen to have something there and you're eating it, you're not aware of it at all. Right? In other words, there's this way that if you are engrossed in something that is demanding of you, that is important to you, right? You can eat and drink in such a manner that you're not actually immersed in the enjoyment of the eating and the drinking. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So some people are like Rabbi Huda Nasi, Rabbi who's very holy, whatever. But but there's this idea is that if the more of your life is really devoted to actually serving Hashem, and that's really what you're into, that's really what you're focused on then how much you actually enjoy your physical existence. Not because, not because you're transcendent, but you're just mentally preoccupied with something else. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's, a, this is a, there's an idea that you shouldn't do things while you're eating if you want to lose weight. Are you familiar with this idea? Yeah. Like if you're watching television or reading while you're eating, you shouldn't do that. Why? You don't realize how much you're eating, right? Now, if you want to like not realize how much you're eating or what you're eating or care too much about the eating, but it's just to get done because it needs to get done, then that might actually be a good idea, right? <laughs> to be preoccupied in something else. So the issue here is what Alter is actually saying is that the more a person is emotionally attached to the sensual experience of the klipa, the, that doesn't disappear because you elevate it into holiness. That's going to stay. And, it, and, and ultimately, the way that that's removed is kind of a, a, a process of facing what that really was in the, in, in the grave. Now, you could do that earlier by not being so emotionally into what you're, the experiences of the physical world of the flesh. And um, there is an idea, and I am not recommending this, because you should definitely not do this, but there is an idea um, that you can preempt the purgatory of the grave. How could you preempt the purgatory of the grave? This, you know, fasting or other types of physical mortification because what is one of the benefits of, of physical mortification is that you break the very thing that you're strengthening by enjoying the, the sensations of the flesh 
Isn't it a problem because then when you eat some, or it actually doesn't work. Like if you then eat, ate something and it tasted even better. What? Like after fasting, if you ate something it tasted even better, is that a no, the reason you shouldn't do it is because it it it, it make it it, it 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 puts a person so focused on the negative they become no longer a vessel for godliness. The Reb, the the Baal Shem Tov said that if you try and, and break your bodily attachments and you and you and you try and break the, the the sense of connection to the pleasures of the flesh, what ends up happening is that you're no longer a vessel for godliness because godliness only resides. Um, in a person who is in a state of joy and optimism and forward thinking. So therefore Hasidus as a general discourages this practice, but there were definitely sects in Judaism that had this approach that if you don't want to suffer, because this sitrachta, this is not a novelty of the altar, it's just informing you, but it exists in other works. And so that, you know, if you don't want to suffer this thing, I mean, you can you know, preempt it now by breaking the attachment of the flesh. And so there were people who like really would take an active measure to do everything possible to make their life physically uncomfortable so that they became detached from their bodily existence. And it's not that that can't work. It could. And it will save you from the purgatory of the, of the grave? Sure, it will. But then you've made yourself, you, you've made yourself incapable of actually um, having closeness with Hashem in your life. Whereas the Hasidic approach would be to either transcend the pleasures of the flesh or at least be so focused on serving Hashem that you've minimized it to whatever degree possible. And that's what he's saying here is that that, that enjoyment, I'll give you just an example. Like, um, I come home and I have dinner. And um, one of the things I like about dinner is sitting down and eating dinner. And you know what really makes it inconvenient to sit down and eat dinner? I have seven little children. And the seven little children mean that when I come home, I want your attention, there's bedtimes, all stuff that needs to get done, right? Now, here's the conflict. I would prefer to do what? Realistically, I mean, like the children aren't going to disappear. So what would I like prefer to do? What I would prefer to do is to deal with all the children, put them down, and then when there's quiet, I will sit down and I will eat my dinner. My wife would prefer that I go into the kitchen, eat my dinner, and then go help with kids. Now, why does she prefer one way and I prefer the other way? And who's right? Because then you're not, you function better. Right, if, I eat, if I eat first, I will function better, right? And you know that's more important, right? Why do I want to do it in the reverse order? I want to enjoy dinner. And it's very hard to enjoy dinner when kids are screaming and you know that you've got to finish quickly because stuff needs to get done, right? You see, you see the issue. Yeah, second <laughs> no, but but so this is this is what we're getting. He's getting at is that is that this 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 trace this imprint comes because there's this there's a, there's this attachment, and as long as that attachment is there, that doesn't change because that they get elevated into Torah and mitzvahs, and the only way that is done when that attachment is actually broken. Ultimately, it's get broken by the grave. If it's if, if it's not there, then then there's nothing to break in the grave, right? It's just all a smooth process, right? But Hasidus doesn't fo- think that breaking it is a point in and of itself. Because remember, if you're just trying to break something, then you adopt a very negative um, mindset, and godliness can't reside in a person who has a negative mindset. Right? So, from here we understand, like you know, yeah, probably it's a better idea if I can be as uh, much engaged in the real important things in life so that I don't evolve into such an attachment to you know, the, the, the pleasures of the flesh if I really care about you know, not being contaminated by klipa. Right? So you see what I'm saying? This is infor- if you understand the dynamics here, it's actually informative. Right? It's true that when you eat the food and it was kosher and everything else, then ultimately it's elevated into the mitzvah. And even if you did an indulgent way, you can do tshuva. It's all true. But there's this trace metal toxin of klipa that's going to accumulate. And the only way to get rid of that is to break the attachment. But if you don't have the attachment to begin with, you don't need to break it. And you cannot have the attachment because you can either be transcended or be preoccupied in something loftier. Right? And even if you can't get, if you can't get to zero, zero heavy metal poisoning, right, it's still better to decrease the amount of heavy metal poisoning in life. Right? So these dynamics 
are, are, are once you understand them, it, it, it's very, it, it's informative, it's empowering. But these dynamics we just spoke about are unique to the klipas noga involved in kosher food. Everything we learned here is the klipas noga in kosher food. It's not the klipas noga of other things. That's not what we're going to talk about. This is this is the effect of eating kosher food and being emotionally engaged with the pleasures of the flesh associated with that. Okay, good. Now, is anyone here going to give up eating seafood because there's no. no? So should you like now become super scared about ever indulging in the pleasures of the flesh because there's going to be the purgatory of the grave? No, no that was not the point. The point is yeah. what. To be informed, and obviously, to as much as possible, you want to minimize that trace. Like, don't be so deluded. Well, it all gets elevated into holiness anyway, so what difference does it make? Yeah, it doesn't all get elevated. There is this trace element, and it can accumulate, and that can have negative effects on you. And ultimately, it has to go out the way it came in. It came in through emotional attachments. It's going to go out through seeing what it really is to be a physical being. And like, why, why set yourself up for that if you don't have to? Good? Okay. All right. The next topic that we have to do is idle chatter and the effect of idle chatter on our souls. Uh, no. What? No. Like yes and no. Too close to What? So I'm going to give you, we're going to do idle chatter, forbidden speech, neglecting Torah study we can skip because it doesn't apply to women. Actually, we're not going to skip it, so you can be grateful that you don't have to worry about it. It's a few lines. And then, we're going to talk about the effect of math on your soul. <laughs> That's all I did. Math. I liked for you. Is it bad? Yeah, screwed I am. I believe... Um, what if you do it in French? <laughs> I believe the line is, is the, the uncleanliness is greater than that of profane speech. Just math? No, no. No, not uniquely math, but I picked math because it's the most powerful of the non-Jewish wisdom. I mean, you can't get more power than math, can you, right? How bad is one um, plus one equals two? What? Like, is it like that type of math or is it like theoretical math? We're going to talk about it. We do have more classes to get through. Okay. So basically, the rest of chapter eight is the rest of guys. The rest of chapter eight is going to have this kind of tone. This whole major math. The rest of chapter 8 is going to have this kind of tone where we're going to go through different kinds of klipa and their long-term effects on our soul and how they can be mitigated. All right? So um, if this doesn't strike you as the kind of...